0: Good morning, good morning, Um, it's good to be here, good to see you all. Uh, If you're new or visiting, uh, I don't see too many, unless you're online. Um, uh, I am Norman, I'm one of the assistant pastors here at King's Cross. Um, I'm grateful to be back, uh, like many others that are here uh, the past week plus, uh, two weeks about. Uh, My family has been in Orlando, uh, soaking up the last bits of summer. Um, They're actually still there, but that's all right. Um, I'm here. uh, It was nice to run into uh, Corey and Kelly uh, to share rides with Corey. He's he's fun to he's fun to ride next to, and and I'm glad his voice is back. Um, A hilarious day. (laughs) Um, I was thinking about all of you while I was out. Maybe some of today's message is written in line for the Millennium Falcon, maybe not. Uh, But I came back earlier, Uh, hello friends that are, I know there's a group that um, might be there, or you'll hear this later, so I'm just waving at the camera. For those of you that are here, Um, it is the final Sunday in August. Um, The final Sunday of summer, in a sense. And I know, as we've said so many times from the presiding, uh, like this, uh, the end of summer is, we're trying to pack it in, um, but it also marks, because we're packing it in because it marks the start of a new season. Uh, for those of you with children um, in school or are in school yourselves, um, as students or teachers, you already know, you already feel it. Things are about to get busy. Um, the emails from the school's, you know, they keep coming. Um, I know for myself when things get busy or when drastic changes happen, I can get tossed to and fro by the waves. Uh, so maybe at the end of August, leading into September, you're anticipating that too. That in the upcoming month, at the end of every day, you're going to feel exhausted. You, you already know it's going to come, it, it happens every year. You're going to be spent, you're going to be confused, disillusioned. Why does this happen? Uh, because September is dizzy, it always is, every year. Um, and as a church, while we can you know, help each other, encourage one another, help each other do the things that need to get done, even if we get everything done, our souls, our souls can be a mess. So in this upcoming season, if you're not in it already, um, what will be our North Star? What will anchor us And when everything around us is moving at a dizzying pace? Um, today's passage that we'll be looking at today, we are continuing the series in First John. Um, today's passage speaks about such anchors. And I hope that as we look at this passage, it would be helpful for us as the upcoming season comes. Um, But would you pray with me as we ask the Spirit to teach us this morning? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would you guide us? We are a broken people in need of your life-giving word. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see Jesus, not as an idea, or as a distant figure, train us to see Jesus through our daily disciplines by practicing righteousness. For it is in love that you call us to experience more of you. For you are the perfect expression of the love that the Father has for us. May we grow more and more in your image. Amen. Listen as I read uh, from 1 John chapter two. Verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The word of the Lord. Um, This is our third message in this series in 1 John that we've called Love Dwelt Among Us. Um, The author, John, as we learned uh, in previous messages, that he's addressing a community in crisis, uh, in division. Uh, last week, um, Josh shared from chapter two where John writes about those who had left, who had caused division, who did not stay with the church. And John's encouragement in this letter to the community is to stay true to the gospel that they had received. Uh, Josh articulated last week, and we'll get to this again. Um, that John is calling the community back to the gospel, which is the good news of who Christ is, what he did, and what he does today. So today's message is titled, Practice Righteousness. In this part of 1 John, John gives instruction to the community to live into their hope. Practice righteousness, he says, by living into your hope. It is our hope that anchors us in life. So in this passage, we're going to look at it together. Um, I hear J- First John, in this passage, I hear John calling us to three kinds of reflection. Three kinds of reflection. Uh, the first is self-reflection. Self-reflection um, immediately followed by uh, what I'll call God-reflection. And finally, life-reflection. So self-reflection... God reflection and life reflection. Uh, so we'll start with our, our self-reflection. At the end of chapter 2, um, we're at the end of chapter 2 in verse 28. We have John addressing the community. He's addressing us as little children. It's a term of endearment. It's his, these are his, the people that he cares for. And he calls us to abide, to abide, to align our whole selves with Jesus, This was the big idea from last week, to abide in him. Abide in him. In abiding in him, John calls us to examine ourselves. He calls us to reflect, to self-reflection. And he does this, if you look in in this passage, he does this by by putting forward two responses that we might have at Jesus' appearing. When Jesus appears, when all is revealed, What are the two responses John puts forward? We can have confidence before him or we can have shame before him. We can have confidence or we can have shame. Now, I I don't think these two responses need much of an introduction, um, but I'll just fill in some nuances, some details here. Um, The word that we have for confidence in this passage is it's actually more often translated boldness. You can have boldness. Related, the, the, the word conveys like an openness, um, a freedom, if you will, if, that one can have when one is fully before others, when f- one is fully before another. It's a posture where one doesn't have to hide when everything is seen, when everything is laid out. That's confidence. It's boldness. It's openness. It's freedom. Um, the word for shame, um, well, most of us, I think all of us, are familiar with shame. Um, Well, shame is practically the opposite. In biblical usage, uh, the word conveys a a disfigured face. Um, Confusion of face, if you know that passage. Uh, Where one can't be at rest, the face contorts, it squints, it scrunches up, it it winces when something is revealed. Um, It's a posture where one will feel the need to hide. That is shame. And I recognize that in our particular moment, um, I need to recognize that I I need to put a a little bit of nuance here regarding shame, because in our culture, uh, if you scroll through your feeds, I guess maybe it's the algorithm telling me anyway. um, In our culture, shame is one of the most unwelcome responses to anything. When something causes us shame, we rebel against it. At least, right now we do. We used to cower, but now we rebel. At least, that's what uh, is going on. At least, that's what I can see. Because much of our pop therapeutic culture teaches us to abhor it. Right? For many of us, and and that resonates with us. uh, For many of us who grew up in the church, shame was used against us. We have we have felt its effects. Many of our painful experiences. In our families, in our church, underscore the harm of shame. But we can't only rebel against it. We cannot ignore shame altogether. It's part of who we are, it's the way that God made us. If we ignore shame altogether, the, the opposite extreme is just as terrible. We'd be shameless. We should not be shameless. Shame is powerful, it is powerful, often too powerful. But there is an instructive aspect to shame. And I believe here, when John is writing this, he's employing that instructive aspect here. Shame can help show us our hearts before Jesus. It can show us our hearts before his appearing. So in this lead-up to righteousness, to practicing righteousness, John calls us to self-reflection. And he puts forward two ways that we can respond to Jesus' appearing in confidence or in shame? Which one are we? Which one are we as a church? And then which one are you? Which one are you? If Jesus were to appear, would you stand before him in confidence or in shame? In this moment that we're in, uh, in the storm that we're in, as Ed was praying before, when we are stressed, when the upcoming month is coming upon us, when our schedules, when our church, when our world seems in flux, how have we lived? Will we be ashamed before our Lord? Will we come with confidence knowing we've done everything with a clear conscience? Did we decide rightly when things were stressful? Did we, as The prophet Micah said, did we do justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly with our God? If you were to stand before the Lord, would you be confident or ashamed? Did we choose to love or did we choose self-protection? Self-reflection. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Most of us know, with John's audience, who he's writing to, that Jesus is righteous. Jesus is righteous. We know that Jesus did good things. We know that he lived uprightly. Even Jesus' opponents couldn't bring anything against him. So this question in verse 29, the text brings before us this question, have we been born of him? In our self-reflection, are we living righteously? If you've been answering any of the, I guess, rhetorical prompts, the truth is that none of us can stand before God completely confident. Even the prophet Isaiah, when he was face-to-face with God, he said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. John wrote this to his dear children not to condemn not to condemn them that's not how he's employing shame here but to encourage them because for us as we're hearing this self-reflection part just when our self-reflection leads us to self condemnation john jumps right in he reminds us of god's reflection in us john immediately goes to the gospel so God reflection, our second point, because while self-reflection, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, if you just sit down for a while and, and, and look at your heart, even just the past day, Self-reflection, while self-reflection shows us our weakness, John reminds us of the Father's love. Our heavenly Father sees us in love. He sees us in love. He sees us in love as his own children. John says, see, at least in our ESV it says see, if you uh, grew up other ones, or if you grew up in a particular song in, in uh, your own, behold what manner of love. See and keep seeing, that see is a continuous seeing, behold, keep this truth in your soul, is what John is telling them, and what he's telling us. The father loves us so much that he has called us his very own, his very own children. And so we are, right? Do you see that? And so we are. We are. John is emphatic here. He is really hammering this down. How many times he repeats this? He continues, we are God's children now. We're God's children now, already. We are God's children now. He underscores that we are God's children because he knows how shame can affect us. Shame often drives us to hide. Shame drives us to hide. It drives us until we can save face, until we can look good enough, until we can earn enough good credit, so to speak, to cancel out our errors. Shame causes us to hide until we can come up with a rationale for our actions. Or it can lead us to hide if we can't save face, if we can't come up with a rationale, if we can't earn enough good credit, Sometimes we just hide and hope enough time passes so that people around us will forget. And then sometimes we emerge, but then we live a very fragile existence. Maybe you have done that, I definitely have. So John underscores to counter that shame. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. The truth that he's underscoring here is that in Jesus, the gospel in Jesus, we already have all, everything. The, the the whatever you're looking for, hoping for, we already have it to the max in Jesus. In Jesus we have everything we could ever hope for. We have confidence, boldness before the face of God. And John is able to say this because of the gospel he keeps pointing them back to. Again, the gospel is good news of who Christ is and what he did and what he does now and forever. Who Christ is? We looked at that in the first uh, message in here, in this series. The very first sermon talking about how he's fully divine and fully human. Who he is, what he did, he made a way for us to be reconciled to God. This is the work on on the cross where, as the gospel of John would say, we have the right to be called children of God. And then the last part, what he does now and forever, which we'll get to right now, what he does now and forever. Because sometimes if you grew up in the church and we're so busy, worried about, oh, am I saved? We're trying to get saved so much, we we leave this last part out. Sometimes we only consider being saved as the good news, that we're forgiven of our sins and we'll live forever with God. I mean, it is good news, but we forget this last part this last part is the best news of all. If we leave that out, we miss out on so much. This is our God reflection. If you look at this passage, John is reminding them, we will look like Jesus. Like not just, I'm not talking about we're all going to have the same face. We will appear, we will be loved, we will, be, we will act, we'll have the character, we'll have the heart. We'll be like Jesus. Because what Jesus is doing now and forever, that last part of the gospel that we often forget, is this, he's making us more and more like himself. He's making us more and more like himself. God loves us, he forgives us, he calls us his children, the first two parts. But he doesn't stop there. He works with us, he's transforming us such that when Jesus appears, when he comes, We will not cower in shame. We will be able to stand with confidence. We could stand with confidence before God. But we're not there yet, right? In chapter 3, verse 2, John is saying we're not there yet. It has not yet appeared. But when Jesus appears, when he comes and makes everything right, we are part of that. We will also be made right. We will be just as he is. We will be just as he is because we could stand before him face to face. We would not be able to stand before him face to face if we were not made right. We would burn because of his holiness. No one could see him as he is if, we were not, if they were not made right. And there is a certainty in that promise that John is expounding on here. And I'm just saying it over and over. Because, I mean, you can see John repeating it over and over in this passage. We will be like him. We will be like him. Does does that not cause your hearts to long for Jesus' return when the nonsense of today will be quieted and we will behold his glory? We're not there yet. But John can speak with certainty because Jesus has made it clear and certain through his death and resurrection. We share that certainty. If our self-reflection present brings us to see our weakness, The God-reflection future that John is laying out for us is absolutely sure in Christ's death and resurrection. We are his children now, which means Jesus is at work now. He's already working. This is our God-reflection hope. We will be like him. This is our God-reflection hope. John takes our past, our past transgressions, our future hope, and then he pulls them into the present. He brings us to our life. How our past and our future pull together in how we live today. So finally, life reflection. Uh, Verse 3 says, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, purify himself. um, It's like who practices holiness. This means that everyone who holds on to the hope we have in Jesus works towards Jesus. Everyone who holds on to this hope we have in Jesus works towards Jesus. Now before I get into this, I need to again underscore the gospel that I just did. I know I just spent a long time on it. But every time we talk about works, it gets tricky. um, Because we'll be discussing things that we do. We see in that entire next block, practices. Whoever practices this, whoever practices that, we don't do these practices to qualify ourselves to be God's children, we don't. He already said, we are, we are his children now. And when we practice works, we always have to remind ourselves because we have this tendency to try to earn righteousness. We do these things because we are God's children. This work of purification, of becoming more like Jesus will surely happen. It's not a futile work, but it also the success of it doesn't depend on us. It depends on what has already happened in Jesus. It's like a it's a little bit of a time machine kind of deal. But that's how that's the gospel that's being put forward. Our hope affects our present. John calls us To practice righteousness because everything that we do forms us. Everything that we do shapes us in some way. Everything that we everything it shapes us in, in some direction. The question is: which way, which direction are we headed? We can either practice towards righteousness, as John is telling us here, or we can practice towards lawlessness. Now, assuming, I'm here assuming that no one is trying to practice towards lawlessness, I hope that's a safe assumption, the question is, do you practice? Do you practice? Do we practice righteousness? Do we train, so to speak? We have a good coach, but do we train? I say that as someone who doesn't do anything. Like, but, you know, I, I, I know the imagery. I, I'll, I'll do it for music. Do we practice our music to become, I don't know, virtuous? I, I will never, but you know, you know what I mean. Um, do we practice? Do we practice? Do we put in the time? Because we know what we will be. Uh, so I'm going to put this question of practicing um, in two ways as we close out. Um, the, the, most of this sermon will be very practical Um, i'll put it in two ways Uh, first i will do it individually which i can only do briefly and then second we'll have a more lengthy discussion communally Uh, so as as individuals do we strive to work do you strive to work into your life into your if you so many people as i came in this morning has have asked me what's your week look like what's your week look like So for us, I'm gonna put that question combined with these. Do you strive to work into your life various ways to practice righteousness? Do you think about that? Is that part of your, what's your week look like? That could be anything individual from practices of prayer to filling your heart and mind with God's word. Um, It could be a regular practice that's part of your schedule of loving your community in service, Monthly, weekly, daily, whatever frequency, whatever frequency in your life that it would be a part of who you are rather than a one off event. That are you, is service, is prayer, is filling your heart and mind with thoughts of God part of who you are, or is it an add on if you have free time? If individual practice, this thing, these things that I'm mentioning are things that you've been thinking about, considering, oh, I'll start then. And you're just waiting for someone to nudge you? You know, I'm nudging. I'm nudging. These are individually, I'm nudging you. You're hearing it. Practice righteousness. Practice righteousness. Um, so that's the first way, individually. Uh, the second way I'll put forward before us is communal. And I'll expand on this in four ways. It's 12, so I got time, I think. Um, I'll expand on this in four different ways that we can practice this communally. Because I I think I know our church well enough from our years here. Like if I was guest preaching somewhere, I would just guess what that church might be doing. But I I know you all. (laughs) Let me put forward four ways, four practical applications for us as a church, rather than speak in hypothetical, perhaps, abstractions. Here are four ways you can practice righteousness as a community. To establish anchors, as I shared in the beginning, that will ground you when things get hectic. Because they will. It's going to get hectic. Um, The first one is a simple one. Uh, A simple, practical thing that I would have hoped to see realized at King's Cross is to Establish a church-wide Bible reading plan. All your apps are reminding you to do it, individually anyway. For those of you, which I think most of us, a few people carry physical Bibles, good, good for you. Um, but for most of us, you know, we might do it individually, but communally, establish a church-wide Bible reading plan. There are so many to choose from. For us, it it honestly doesn't matter which one. As a church, I know that we currently don't employ one, so any Bible reading plan that moves us to practice together is a practice in the right direction. Establish a church-wide Bible reading plan. Pick one, read together, and as you're reading, know that, oh, I know he's also reading, or I know she's also reading, and I want to ask about it. We want to talk about it. Know that you're doing it together. I know this overlaps a little bit with individual, but I'm trying to emphasize here the communal aspect that we're doing a Bible reading plan together. Um, I know there are many reasons in the past why such a simple application has not happened. Um, I know sometimes we don't, we don't want to start things because we don't think we will have enough discipline individually to continue it. We won't be the anchor for everyone else to keep going so we never start. That's perfectionism, I think, for us. But in reading together, I'm, I'm not asking for any one of you to be an anchor. I'm asking for all of you to anchor yourselves together to Christ and his word. Um, I know some of us will need direction for this. And all of us, whether we are new Christians or leaders for years, uh, things get busy. We will forget a day. And if you've ever done a Bible reading plan, you're like, oh, I need to catch up on like 12 days of reading. Um, it's okay. Remember that those that you uh, go to church with, your leaders, they are also humans. They are human as well. But just because we're all human and we have uh, imperfections does not excuse us from pursuing righteousness, from practicing righteousness, to know the heart heart and mind of God together. Um, Your leaders who you want to lead you in these things, your CG leaders, your diaconate, your elders, they need your encouragement as much as you desire theirs. So read the Bible together first one, do a church-wide reading plan. Uh, The next one I'll I'll, I'll do much shorter. Um, The next one is is pray together. Um, And I'll be brief on this one because the point is to not make prayer complicated. Um, Pray together, why? Just to commune together with the Lord. Um, This is not to say that prayer meetings for particular purposes are, are bad we definitely need to come together to pray for specific things. But be anchored not by our requests and our needs, but by our relationship with God. Pray together. Pray together because praying together is good. It's plainly good. So um, church-wide reading plan, pray together. Third, Application, there's a total of four, stay with me, um, serve the community together. Uh, sometimes we get into our heads that we need to figure out ourselves internally before we can reach out externally. Um, that's nonsense. Uh, I mean, t- to some degree, we need to know who we are. But sometimes we make that degree really high. <laughs> um, And and it's our excuse to not serve our community. We think that serving the community, practicing righteousness in our neighborhood, we think that it's something that we add on after we figure out ourselves within. The scriptures never put forward such a prerequisite. So I know every week um, in our announcements, just very practical examples, we, we have announcements like, oh, this organization needs helpers or needs donations or needs volunteers or there's an announcement oh there's an opportunity to serve at you know fill in the blank and when we hear these as a church at least the feel that I get is that we treat these announcements as like an a la carte menu like at a restaurant. Oh I'll, I'll, I'll pick that one this week. I'll pick that one this week or someone else will eat that one and someone else will pick that one but serve the community together. As God's children, we do not treat service opportunities as optional events to add to our schedule. Service opportunities are ways we practice righteousness together. It's not just for diaconate. It's not just for those who have a passion for service and justice in in the language of this passage, it is a means of purification. It is critical for how we are formed, for becoming more like Jesus. Communally practice righteousness in loving our neighbors as a whole church, not just part of the church. Because as God's children, community, service, and love is intrinsic to who we are as his. Finally, and we'll close with this to to get us to the table. Finally, commit yourself to this, uh, to worship. Um, I know I say this on the last Sunday in August where historically it does look like this, Um, but that's okay. I'm glad some of us are online. Um, Commit yourselves to this, to worshiping together. Um, Our weekly worship that we come every week here don't neglect this. Don't just passively attend. Actively participate. Because this worship service, it's not spiritual karaoke plus a weird TED Talk. That's not what's going on here. Weekly worship is formation concentrate. It's formative. But it's not formative if you don't think you're here, like you're watching, but you're not really here you're not being formed don't just passively attend actively participate all of it um, for those of you that have gone through uh, who have or just talked to me about worship before or have gone through presiding training everything in this service it's meant to reorient our hearts and minds to see to hear uh, to feel the things of God to recenter ourselves because practicing righteousness is hard, right? It's hard. What worship does, if we engage, if we let the Spirit move us from passive spectator to active participant, worship revives us. It revives our weary souls that may have been spent by the burdens, the worries, the sleepless nights of the week. Worship strengthens us for righteousness. It reminds us as we gather that we are God's children now. Even the person we don't like, they're in process. He or she is God's children now, just as you are. It reminds us that we are God's children now when the rest of the week tells us that we're cogs in a machine, that we're trying to be efficient, that we're trying to be productive coming here in worship, standing before a God who welcomes us to confess and pronounces forgiveness. It reminds us that we are his, that we are loved. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is why when we come together the experience of Christ matters at this table. Um, it matters. How we experience, how we engage, even at this table. When you go to a, a nice restaurant, um, if they served you things on a paper plate, you'd be like, eh, <laughs> right? Um, but everything that we experience from the things that we say to the words that we sing to the way that things are presented. Presentation matters because presentation touches not just our minds, it touches our hearts, our experiences. If you ever stood before something beautiful, no one needs to tell you that it's beautiful. You just experience it. It's not a cognitive thing. You experience that goodness. This is why sometimes... When you have a beautiful experience at the table, real bread, um, wine if you're inclined, uh, it's served, when it's served in a way that touches all of who we are, the gravity, the beauty, the sacredness of this table, they add to our experience of Jesus. In so many ways, I wish we could complement that longing um, with a more immersive experience, but the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he is no less present here than he is at a banquet feast. He is fully present with us, even in our state.